Chopping wood inside. We've met before, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> back everybody uh i'm still murphy are you still tom tom well not for tonight since we're doing lost highway so i might as well be fred madison or the mystery man are you pete i'm not I'm more fred madison than pete i'll be richard pryor <laughs> you want to be richard pete's back yeah so if you haven't guessed uh, we're gonna do lost highway uh, we have really you and i have not watched this movie in a while and so it's been quite a trip down memory lane to remember all the uh, memories we have of watching this it was very influential in our lives and now seeing it again it's like seeing it uh, with uh, different eyes. So it's been, I can't wait to get into this thing. Yeah, I'm excited too. We had not really talked about Lost Highway for many years. In fact, I don't even own the film. Well, I, I do now. I bought it um, on Vudu uh, streaming so Murphy and I could watch it. But I don't own it because the DVD, apparently all the releases at least, up until the, there's a new one coming out, I think in June, which will be a Blu-ray, the, the visual, the, the picture quality or the sound, whatever, just sucks. And I think I had seen still images or read some reviews. And this is such a beautifully shot film, like all of Lynch's films, but it's so dark. It's, I think, really unique in the Lynch canon with its its darkness, its dark qualities. Very comparable to what we saw in Twin Peaks Part 18. But I was I made a decision not to make the purchase. And uh, I'll get the Blu-ray eventually. But I have not seen it. So hence, I have not seen it in a long time. And we have not talked about it. And uh, it's kind of refreshing. It's it it's a better movie. I loved it originally, but it has aged remarkably well, in my opinion. 
I know. I thought it was going to be a little more like I thought the second act lagged when I first saw it and uh, it was a little bit too over my head at some at some points because it was so cold and unemotional and it didn't have a, real, a lot of the humor that some of his other movies had. So and I think it also in a way got kind of forgotten because of Mulholland Drive was so influential. And like that was the other Hollywood movie that Lynch made that people seem to remember and talk about now. But Lost Highway gets kind of uh, swept under the rug. So we're pulling it out. We're pulling it out, Tom. I agree with you. The comparison to um, Mulholland Drive, it really was the first or is the first Lynch film, you know, have a setting in Los Angeles. And then he subsequently did Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. And this is a dark, dark Hollywood story. I mean, we've got an undercurrent of the the, the pornographic underworld in this film, which we didn't get, which maybe we got a little bit of hints in Inland Empire with uh, uh, one of the iterations of the Laura Dern character. But I, I think that it came out at a a bad time. Lynch always says he does these interviews like when he makes the film, it's like there's something in the air. When it gets released, he has no control over it. And it kind of depends on what's in the air as to how successful the film might be. And when this movie came out in February, February of 1997, do you know what the number one film at the box office was that particular weekend? Uh, Three Men and a Little Baby. <laughs> I think you're about 10 years <laughs> off, know. but... Uh, Short Circuit? <laughs> 11 years off. Seven? It was the Star Wars reissue. Oh, geez. Does that really count? What about the like a real movie in 97? Remember the 20-year anniversary of Star Wars? Yeah, I remember that. Three weeks later, Empire came out. That was what was in the air. It was this, this nostalgia. Lucas had incorporated uh, the new, new technology and uh, inserted some new scenes. So it wasn't just a, a standard reissue, but that's what people were going to see in the theater. So you've got all this nostalgia, the Star Wars, you've got a new generation that gets to see it in the theater for the first time. And then David Lynch comes along with Lost Highway, arguably the darkest film in his entire oeuvre. And it did, uh, I mean, it even, it did poorer than Fire Walk With Me, which is saying a lot. Did people think his career was over after this? Like what, the, what happened? Did he freak out? Go into an even darker place? Because what did he do before Mulholland Drive? Like, what was he, he had like a four-year period of darkness? No, the period of darkness was between Fire Walk With Me and Lost Highway, about four and a half years. And then after Lost Highway, he did The Straight Story in 99 and then Mulholland Drive in 01. So I think a partial reason why this film is so dark, because I think at least creatively, Lynch was probably in the darkest place that he was um, before he became a filmmaker. He was persona non grata. He couldn't get uh, any of his ideas off the ground. He couldn't get Roddy Rocket. He tried to do a film called Dream of the Bovine with Marlon Brando and <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton, which was a comedy. Did Marlon play the didn't bovine? Work. Yeah, Marlon, Harry Dean, and then Max Perlick, who was the remember the guy Chip ain't got no phone from season three. Oh yeah, yeah. He would have been the. Love that guy. Yeah, he's, he's great. He was in Ferris Bueller too, I think, and. Uh, other movies, but he would have been the third. It was about cows who assimilated as as humans, but they still retained their bovine qualities. And it was apparently a, a, a wacky comedy. <laughs> the udders? It's a good question. Was there milking involved? With Lynch, come on. Of course there was. Yeah. Extreme close-ups of udders. <laughs> he couldn't get these projects off the ground. And I think he was coming off Firewalk with me, which he loved, but no one else did. And I think that, and he was he was obsessed with the OJ trial, which I think <laughs> kind of bled into the narrative subconsciously because he admitted in an, in an interview later on that 
it was. You could kind of make a connection between what OJ was going through and what Fred Madison uh, experiences in, in the film. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> <laughs> but after this film, even though it didn't do well, I think it reestablished himself, even though he didn't need to be reestablished. But I think within Hollywood and the artistic community, even though it wasn't a big box office sell, uh, didn't do Bafo numbers, people could recognize uh, the the brilliance of the the film, maybe not the storytelling because it is a very abstract film. <laughs> they couldn't understand it, but they knew it was art and beautiful and scary. It's another puzzle box, Tom, in his many puzzle box movies. I did a tweet and said it's the most in, impenetrable film. Yeah, although The Return, some people might say it was The Return, actually. But yeah, I think this is probably his most impenetrable film. Well, some people also say Inland Empire, which I tend to agree with. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's forgetting about that. Yeah, it's definitely Inland Empire, dude. <laughs> <laughs> this one at least like seems, I mean, you, you, I mean, you and I just went through it the last couple of days, and we understand it. We figured it out. It's not, I mean, in, Inland Empire, I still don't understand. And uh, so I think that one still stands above head and shoulders. And impenetrable. Little clarity here. We have not figured it out. I don't think that it can be figured out, just like the return. We have our own interpretations of it, but there are many, many valid interpretations. Regarding Inland Empire, um, I agree. I think that probably is his most impenetrable film. But for me, I've only seen it a couple of times. I've got some serious issues with it. I need to revisit it. We talked about not even doing a podcast on it because we've got issue, issues with it, but I think that we should eventually at some point down the road. Um, I think that what the major problem with Inland, Inland Empire, even though I think it's brilliant, and I think that out of the three-hour running time, there's a brilliant 90-minute movie in there, the biggest problem with Inland Empire was the... Uh, uh, the rabbits. <laughs> no, I like the rabbits, actually. It was the Poland section specifically for me, but the, the lack of uh, presence of Mary Sweeney, his longtime... Paramore collaborator who edited all of his films since Fire Walk With Me. And this film, Endland Empire, in my opinion, needed the Mary Sweeney touch. Lost Highway got the Mary Sweeney touch, right? Yeah, she she uh, was elevated to producer as well. Well, so where do you want to start in this impenetrable mystery box movie? How do you want to start analyzing this thing? I don't want to start analyzing it quite yet. All right, all right. When was the first time you saw this film? Uh, I saw this in Colorado uh, when it came out, though, I think opening day. And I saw it with one of my friends, and he goes, we walked out, and he goes, I have no idea what the fuck just happened. And uh, <laughs> I liked it. I thought it was great. But I think I know people were laughing at, like, the wrong places. <laughs> and so I was like, uh-oh, I don't think it was really going over that well. It wasn't too a packed audience. And uh, I thought it was a great movie. You and I loved it immediately. I loved the soundtrack. I listened to the soundtrack for, like, years. And, like, my, like a lot of my early 20s, uh, I can remember memories of the soundtrack playing behind it. So... It was a big deal to me. I loved it, but I, I thought that like just like uh, Firewalk with Me, that he was like oh for the last two. The people didn't like it. They didn't like his work. He was going down, and we always like, like it's kind of not so cool to be a David Lynch fan anymore. It was kind of sad, but I still loved it and believed in him. Did you only see the film one time in the theater? Yeah, I remember. I think you and I saw it on tape once we, once it came out again. But yeah, I only saw it once in the theater. I think I don't think it was in the theater very long, and I was living in Boulder, and I had to come. <laughs> yeah, I come down to call it to Denver to see it. I think it was only in for like a week. <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> but I remember reading reviews of people like, you know, New York Times. Like, they, they got it and they liked it. But it just wasn't, you know, it's just, it, it is, it's hard. I mean, it's a mystery box and, like, it's very cool. Like, it's like very Kubrickian and cold in a lot of the dialogue. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very testosterone-filled, like, misogynistic kind of crazy nightmare um, that's not that accessible, but I think it's fucking great. I think it's one of his masterworks. It's a, I think it's a, almost in many ways a perfect movie other than Balthazar Getty. Oh, <laughs> no offense to him. Now, I don't hate him. Yeah, I don't hate him, but I, I probably would have 
could have figured, figured someone else out, but that's a, it's a quibble. Who? We talked about this. I don't know. Uh, Christian Slater. Remember we talked about that? Yeah, Christian Slater. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that his performance has grown on me, and I never really thought it was bad, but I actually think it's... How about Goldblum? Goldblum as, as Pete Dayton? <laughs> yeah, the fly. <laughs> <laughs> Brundle Pete? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why me, Alice? Why choose me? I was living in Wisconsin. I was working at a video store in the fall, winter of 95. And uh, the video store had these like monthly newsletters which would promote the new releases and there would be some additional information, Hollywood information. And one of the tidbits in this particular month's episode or episode newsletter was David Lynch's new movie. So that's how I first heard about it. It was a little snippet. They called it The Lost Highway. I remember that. And I think it did say that Patty Arquette and Bill Pullman were going to be in it. And it was like uh, it was a man in trouble. or It was very uh, uh, just ephemeral uh, description. <laughs> Instead of a woman in trouble, it's a man in trouble. <laughs> isn't, isn't that apt? It's a man in trouble, right? Yeah. That a, yeah. He went. He progressed to his women in trouble films, well, Mulholland Drive and, and Inland Empire. Well, he went back. Like the Elephant Man. It's also a woman in trouble. Yeah. Blue Velvet and Eraserhead. Yeah, I think he got in touch with his, in his with his feminine side at some point. How about the Straight Story? Is that a man in trouble? Is he dying? I think that was a lawnmower in trouble or a oh, yeah. tractor trailer, whatever the hell he <laughs> they was. They went riding. straight from the Ghost Ride. He went from the Ghost Ride, the cool David Bowie Ghost Ride punk rock of Lost Highway to the Tractor Ghost Ride and Straight Story two years, two years later. Yeah, and you know what? There's that great uh, crane shot in the Straight Story where he you see Alvin. Uh, you know, motoring at about three miles an hour on the highway and the camera, the crane goes up to the sky and then it comes back and you see the, the beautiful landscape and the highway and then you see Alvin like eight feet like where he was previously. It's funny. Would you say that that was his setup? Would you say that was his cinematic midlife crisis? Lynch? A uh, Lost Highway? No, the straight story. No, I think Lost Highway is. Oh, really? I okay. think Lost Highway is his... We're going to get into the film. Let me talk about the backstory a little bit, and then we're going to get into all this stuff. Uh, it's a very good point, the, the midlife crisis, a career, and maybe personal to some extent. But so I, I knew of the film at that particular point, and then I would find tidbits here and there from you know Variety or Hollywood Reporter. And, um, but the one big coup, I moved to uh, Dallas uh, subsequently, or, or a few months later, and you and I, I think I was living with you and your girlfriend at the time, and... I wanted to know, I was obsessed. It had been like four or five years since a new Lynch movie, and I've always been a huge Lynch fan. And there was the advent of the internet. I was, so I did some research. I wanted to find out more about the film. So I knew it was Asymmetrical Productions, which was Lynch's production company. So one night, I got a wild hair up my ass, and I go, I'm going to just call Asymmetrical and uh, act like I am a cub reporter for the North Texas, whatever it was, because that's the school that you went to and that you wrote for the newspaper, right? The North Texas Daily Bugle. Yeah, yeah, I wrote for that. Yeah. So I got in touch with the publicist, the unit publicist for Lost Highway. Her name was Deborah Wooliger, I think. And I sold her. I go, hey, look, I'm just this you know stupid kid. <laughs> you mean you conned her? I conned her. <laughs> yes. No, good job. Yeah. I was trying to, and I try to remain professional, not like some stupid you know fanboy idiot who's you know insane, which I probably was a little bit at that at that particular point. Too late. <laughs> but uh, so I had like a 10, 15 minute dialogue with her and she was very professional. I mean, she probably had her, her talking points that she just stuck to. But the two things that I remember from the conversation was that she, she compared it. Uh, she said it was less Baroque compared to Wild at Heart. So Bar Wild at Heart would have been more Baroque and this one was less Baroque. And I remember not knowing what Baroque meant at that point, And I had to look up Baroque. 
So that's the product of a public education. So she also described in little bit of detail the mystery man scene, which really just set my uh, expectations like a, a fire. How did she describe that scene to you? Did you say like there's a scene where he walks in and he says, I'm in your, your house, call me? Is that what he said? How did she describe that? Dude, this was like 22 years ago. Tom, any good reporter knows to be able to remember stuff like it verbatim. You have a good memory. Come on, buddy. Well, I like to remember things my own way, not necessarily how they happened. Yeah. Your own way. Do you think the second she hung up that she turns around and litches behind her and goes, You're fired! Don't be telling script story ideas to idiot reporters! <laughs> Pack your shit and get out of here! <laughs> I don't know, but that was... So I got to see the film before it actually arrived in theaters because the newspaper that Murphy worked um, for was, you had a colleague, our friend Ricky, who we became chummy with. And Ricky was this, he he was this go-getter. He reviewed all the films. He knew all the films and we were very chummy. And so since he was a, a reporter with some reputation, even though he was very young, he got to see screenings all the time. And he knew I loved Lynch. So he goes like, hey, look, I'm, I got a, a pass to go see the screening of Lost Highway before it comes out. I, I can get you in. I was like, ding, sold, I'm in. So I got to see it for the first time, like on a Tuesday at like 10 o'clock in the morning Eek. with like eight other people in the theater and they were all film critics. Eek. So um, that was the first time I saw it. So then, then the when it opened, uh, I went and saw it with our two friends, Hondo and, and Carter. And then I saw it with a couple of uh, uh, girls who, who I was friendly with. And each time they all hated it. They, they hated the film. And it was pretty much at that point I gave up. No, it was when I went to see Eyes Wide Shut. I took about 10 people to go see Eyes Wide Shut who would never see the movie. And I go, this is going to be the best movie of all time. You're going to love it. And they, they were throwing <laughs> shit at the screen, basically. And I remember walking in my car, like 10 feet in front of that whole group. I, they just don't get it. They didn't they, like the orgy? They didn't like any of it. They hated it. Come on, it's a crowd pleaser. And that was it. That was the last time I went to try to get a group of people to go see a movie that I was really passionate about. Uh, but The Lost Highway was the second to last. Didn't you ever think, like, I need to get the fuck out of Texas? That's the problem, because everyone doesn't get you. You got to move to New York or something? L.A.? Eyes Wide Shut was in Louisiana, actually. So, oh, that's yeah, well, That pretty much says it all right there. Yeah, yeah, that says it all. Yeah. So, but then I think I saw it in the theater, like, once or twice by myself, and then I got it on home video, and I watched it repeatedly. But this one really spoke to me. I mean, I like the darker Lynch. I like the abstract Lynch. And even though... Uh, there wasn't a lot of humor in it. It was a different type of Lynch film. Um, it resonated very deeply with me. It was his first. It was his first obvious puzzle box. I thought, right? I mean, Twin Peaks is a puzzle box, but this really was a puzzle box. Yes, I agree. I think. I think it is. I think there are three true puzzle box. From the Dick Laurent is dead moment, that right there is a great hook, and it just really leads you down the videotapes. It's, it's a. It's a great little, and it goes completely abstract bizarre but uh i think that was the obvious one we were like okay let's try to figure out what the fuck was what, what did we just see and just like mahal drive and it'd be just like the return and inland empire it, well i guess it is yeah i just i, I gave up on trying to figure out that, that puzzle i stopped trying put it down it's like an eight million piece jigsaw i had like eight pieces put together and you saw it how many times once 
<laughs> on opening night, though, with Lynch there in yeah. the audience. Chris Isaac, yeah, so I watched it. In the East, the Far East, when a person is sentenced to death, they're sent to a place where they can't escape. Never knowing when an executioner may step up behind them and fire a bullet into the back of their head. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Pete, I just wanted to jump on and tell you that I'm really glad you're doing okay. When's the last time you saw this? It's got to be at least 10, 15 years, right? No, no. It was, only, it was a couple years. I watched it a couple years ago. I watched it every few years. So, no, it's it actually, I thought it was going to, like I said, I think it actually stood up well. And it's, a, it's one of his, like, you know, he's probably got four or five, like, just absolute masterpieces. And I think this one is a masterpiece. And it actually, I think it ages well uh, for modern times and, like, the millennial audience because it has all the, like, different realities. And, you know, it's, it's the stuff that, like, we're all getting used to when you watch, like, Westworld and Lost and things like that where people are used to alternate timelines. And, you know, it, it just seems like people have really been influenced slowly by Lynchian lynching storytelling and so now it probably is more accessible because for me when i first thought i was like what in the fuck am i watching you know and this time i was like okay like you, know, you can it's kind of obvious like that you know at least from my opinion that pete is a figment of like you know uh his imagination and that he's not real he's but and so there's 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 and then you see get to see flashbacks of what really happened with the murder and it's kind of like a mobius strip at the end and it's it's not as impenetrable and uh it's fascinating too. It's also, I think it's beautiful. I think it really is one of his masterpieces and it should be right up considered with Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart and all the other ones is like, not a flawed masterpiece, but a masterpiece. But what are the flaws? Uh, like I said, I think Patricia Arquette, the misogyny, like you don't really get to see her character uh, as a full-fledged character. She's like a, fan, a phantom, a figment of his imagination. I'm not sure we ever get to actually see the real uh, Renee. And so, the, so that there's a certain uh, one-sided view of this and it's really angry and violent and it, it's not uh and i think pete dayton also is there's like you know a few minutes in the, in the middle there that lags when you get deep into his alternate uh, reality and his dream state i think that could have been cut but uh other than those two things i think it's fantastic i think it's perfect it's a poem well you said dream state i don't think that we're dealing with a dream here i think we're dealing with what Lynch coined as a psychogenic fugue. It's a mental condition. You go into a trauma and you have like an ultimate, yeah, you're trying to protect yourself from ultimate trauma. And so your mind creates a figment, an alternate reality or an alternate persona or whatever it is to escape what's really happening, right? Is that what that is? It really does describe Fred Madison's uh, narrative. And it was something that I don't think Lynch or Barry Gifford, who co-wrote the script, were familiar with until afterwards. And I think that same publicist was the one who uh, came across. You mean ex-publicist. <laughs> right after our phone conversation was <laughs> that came up with that. And then I think they used that in the, the publicity materials, like the press kit and whatnot, because it fit perfectly. And then also isn't fugue like a musical term as well. And I think Lynch is very musical and the way that something could start at one particular point and then kind of segue into something else, um, I think is kind of right up his creative alley. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Are you just humoring me? Uh, well, I'm not, I've never actually heard fugue in, ter in musical terms. So I was just nodding. So I didn't have to feign. Uh, that I knew what I was talking about, which I don't, because sure, I believe you. Well, isn't a few like like Bach? I mean, doesn't Bach have all kinds of like you know titles sounds, like the fugues? Like, that's uh, yeah, I think yeah. I think it's a musical term as well. Is it a band? The fugue? Is there a band out there called the fugue or the fugue state? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure, sure there is, but uh, 
But okay, so you're talking about the the with the dream state. Let's talk about that for a little bit because I came across an interview and doing a little bit of research on Lost Highway, which is interesting because there's a 14 minute video on YouTube where Lynch discusses the film and he's more forthcoming about the project uh, than any other project that I've ever seen any interviews, uh, any interviews that he gave. He goes into some uh, real details where, you know, usually it's like he doesn't like to talk about the meaning of the film. Not that he does, but he was more forthcoming, which is very surprising. But one of these interviews, he explicitly stated, this is not a dream. This is not Fred Madison's dream. And watching the film again as, well, 20 plus years later, I had the same um, experiences you, especially the first time. I don't think anyone can really unravel or uh, you know the film on one viewing because it's just so mysterious and and really slow and hypnotic. And the way that certain characters speak, like the the Patty Arquette character, whether it's Renee or Alice, it's almost like she's speaking like you know that she's within a dream. It's very slow and drawn out. That the the languid pace. So it has that dreamlike quality, but I don't think that what we're seeing in the film is a Fred Madison dream or any of the other characters' dream. I think it it is since we're talking about um, what what is the term? Is it it's I think it's the, the killing your own wife. Is it uxorcide or I don't know. I think it's U X O R C I D E or something. I remember an old article that I read about the film and I can't pronounce it. I didn't look it up, but killing your own wife. I mean, that is what we're talking about um, in this film narratively and how a character reacts and, and deals with that um, uh, afterwards. And, you know, I, I don't think you're going to conjure up a dream. You're going to try to conjure up, a, a, a different reality if, if you can or conjure up other characters. Oh, but you're conjuring. That's what a dream is. Conjuring a different reality in your mind. Right? Call it what you will. It's a dream last night. You were inside the house. You were calling my name. The Fred Madison aspect of it, the, the, the character, I think that what we're dealing with here is is a mental illness. And I think that anyone who kills someone has to be disturbed, has to have some kind of mental illness, short of you know, war or you know, some you know, temporary insanity, uh, revenge, something. This was a situation where his wife, at least the details that were given, is that she's not faithful to him. And, and, and then... It's really all about his inadequacy as a partner, as as a lover, and maybe as a communicator. So to kill your spouse because she's cheating on you, of course, that's happened. It's happened a, a lot. But Fred Madison is a very successful musician. They live in this very, you know, uh, this great house, very uh, like Art Deco. It's Lynch's house, by the way. Um, post Pomo. It is. We stalked it. We st- they have video cameras on the outside as well. It was, it was in 09 or when did Inglorious Bastards come out? Cause I was in, we were in LA. Yeah. 09. We went 09. and, and uh, cruised up on uh, that street and so there was like 18 video cameras on the outside. Cause probably we weren't the only ones driving up that street talking about the, the, the Patty Arquette and even the Balthazar Getty performances, at least their performances. I think if this is a construct of Fred Madison, uh, that 
these images that we're seeing play out in the film are actually playing out in his mind. So <laughs> yeah. remember Mulholland Drive when, you know, Betty gets off the plane and she talks to the old couple and like, they say like, oh, we just know you're going to be a big star. And she has that, that really exaggerated line reading. It's a saccharine. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. Like, oh, won't that be the day? <laughs> I was like, oh boy. After I was like, uh-oh, this could be horrible. And then like, okay, Coco. But it was all just a dream. It was a, it was a fiction. It was what she wanted it to be after she had killed her lover. Her entire career had been ruined and she was bordering on suicide that she was, you know, having her own fugue state and, and, and envisioning what it would be like to come to Hollywood and have it all work out and have her be like a Nancy Drew, you know, falling in love. And then it all tur- it all crumbles just like this crumbles on him in act three. It does. It does crumble on him because I think he is insane uh, and that no matter what construct, whatever reality he creates, it's always going to end the same way. It's all going to crumble and it's going to end in, in madness. But um, the exaggerated line readings from whether it's Betty or Diane and Mulholland Drive or Patty Arquette as Renee or Alice, it's it's Lynch knowing his story and knowing the mood that he wants to create. And I mean, anyone could see or watch or listen to this and realize this is not normal. No one really talks like this. It's a part of the story because we're talking about uh, uh, an alternate reality, whether it's a dream, that it feeds into it. And, but some people, I think, either have problems of that with that or maybe they don't understand it. But you made a very good point of when we were talking about the, the Patty Arquette character, at least the Alice uh, section with the, the, the really the overt misogyny and all the shit that she has to go through and, and her, her line readings. It's like, well, it's one thing if this is a construct of Fred Madison, but Lynch has a responsibility as a filmmaker to tell a story and to entertain an audience to some regard. He could have altered the character to you know go in another direction, but I think that's just David Lynch because he's been consistent. There were moments in Twin Peaks: The Return where there were some line readings. Remember the first time, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Candy Clark, uh, Frank Truman's wife. Remember that whole scene? Yeah, I just think it would have been nice if uh, Patty, you could have seen her Renee's real character, so that this version that you're seeing of her as being this devil woman, you know, this this heartless, you know, femme fatale setting him up. Uh, you could really see that this is his version of reality and that she really was perhaps cheating on him and all this other stuff. But there's, there's a real story there. You saw the pain in her life, which she's being having to strip at gunpoint, all this horrible shit that she's having to go through. Uh, you could have told that story a little bit and, and shown, I think it would have been more nuanced, but of course this is just a crazy Lynch dreamscape. So this is what he does. He does this in all his movies, really. What's interesting that you mentioned the, 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 the strip tea, the strip tees, the the stripping scene where she's made to strip down in front of Mr. Eddie and a whole group of people. Well, it really is a, a contrast, or it's similar, but there is a contrasting, or there's a there's a difference with the audition scene in Mulholland Drive. You have the very naive good girl Betty going into the audition scene with a whole group of people. It's very claustrophobic and she starts off the scene one way and then she realizes that she or she instinctively goes another way. But I think because of the whole film of knowing that she really is Diane who is conjuring this, dreaming this, that darker quality of her personality takes over and and really transcends the scene. I mean, a lot of people, when they talk about Mulholland Drive, they talk about the audition scene. Well, if you watch this scene, which is an audition scene in Lost Highway, she explicitly says, hey, I you know, met a man at Moke's 
and about a job and she went to this house and it's it's totally lynchian some some guys just looking at her staring at her with bulging eyes and then another guy's just like you know bench pressing in the corner it's <laughs> totally random but she goes in this room with a bunch of people there's mr eddie the director per se sitting down and she's made to strip and you see the fear in her eyes she doesn't want to do the, so the guy comes up and puts a gun to her head and she's forced to strip but at some point like betty in the audition scene she has a change of attitude and you can see she's turned on by it. There's a change. And I don't think it's as powerful as Mulholland Drive. Yeah. No, when she bends, she goes, you see it in her eyes. I think it, Patty Arquette doesn't get enough credit for this film. I mean, playing the two roles, uh, the Betty Page like uh, Renee. <laughs> They're almost the same roles though. They're almost exactly the same. Oh, I don't think there's vast differences. I think so. Now, there's not a lot because she she really is an object. She is Fred Madison's object as both his wife and as his mistress. I think that if you watch that audition scene and the scene in the desert where they're making love and even the scene in Andy's place where she has different ranges of emotion where she seems to be uh, more aligned with Pete and like, let's get this money and let's fence it. And then like being very mysterious. And then at one point holding a gun to Pete's head, she's playing very subtle differences of a manufactured personality. I think in a very subtle fashion, uh, she, she pulls it off. She does, she does a great job. And, and to do what she had to do to, to get naked like that and to be fetishized, like that first shot, remember when Fred's in bed and he sees her like in the night, just taking off her clothes by the closet and the way she lifts her arm up. It's like, it's like she's being fetishized as an object. It's not real. Yeah, the real Renee was like Patty Arquette in Flirting with Disaster. And this was his, like, nightmarish version <laughs> once he realized he was cheating on her. Yeah. And really, I think, like, okay, those characters, they do the subtle differences. They give you that. But really, I think what changes is, the, is that he changes. You know what I'm saying? He goes from, like, being this, like, very cold, emotionless, detached, angry, bitter, fairly impotent, like, lover, husband, um, to being this virile James Dean, able to, like, bang everybody, like, do, give her all the pleasure he wants, like, living this, fan like, you know, romantic, you know, mysterious uh caper lifestyle he's living like he's he's going he's reverting into like a persona that he wishes he was and that she's reacting to that more she she likes that character she likes pete she doesn't like uh fred you know so that's why the one also reasons why her character is different and the two realities because the character the character she's playing off of is very different do you think fred is actually impotent i don't think he's an impotent but he's like obviously you know not a not a great lover that's why she's patting out patting him on the back and uh, she does, and obviously she's, you know, obviously got, you know, she's very sexual. She's got all kinds, of, you know. So he's probably she's not. Got some experience. Yeah, he, yeah, he's got some experience. So he's not even in the ballpark, and, uh, <laughs> and so that's the thing is like that's why he's so bitter and angry, and he can't handle his ego once he realizes all this shit's been going down, which we see replayed later uh, in Pete when he finds out, like, why did you get involved with these people? That's really just him reenacting what was happening in real life, but now he's Pete and he can do something about it. I really love the shot where she's got her eye, like the raccoon eyes. And she's like telling the close up in the, in the hotel, like, this is what we're going to do. I love the close. That's like, what's one of my favorite shots in the whole scene, the whole movie. And that really, yeah. She's got the, the mascara that's kind of rubbed it's beautiful. off. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful shot. Um, you talked about the, the you know, supposed impotency, impotency of, of Fred Madison, but on stage when he's performing, he's a sexual dynamo. Yeah. He that's is where he gets it all out. Yeah. That's where he's blown his wad. Literally.
go ahead and just give me your interpretation of the film because it's very similar to my interpretation, but I have uh, a little bit of a different interpretation with the first third of the film. He's in the he's in on death row, about to die, so he's you know let's let's get out of here. Let's try to fin- spend my last uh, moments somewhere positive and like wow you know you're he's reviewing all the mistakes he made and what what you know maybe he has this like crazy it's like a fugue state or it's an alternate reality kind of like uh diane and Mulholland drive when she takes the key and goes into the keyhole is that this is his uh fictitious escape his own pocket universe that he goes into while he's in jail and whereas suddenly all of a sudden he's free and he's young and you know, he's virile and he's everything he wanted to be. He's probably, maybe he loved uh, James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause because he's James Dean all of a sudden with the sideburns, smoking the cigarette. He's a cool guy with a leather jacket. He's got Natalie Wood's daughter as his girlfriend. He's got the uh, James Bacchus, Gary Busey at home, the parent, the parental units. He's not an adult anymore. He's a teenager. And that's probably where he wants to be because he, maybe he had a great childhood. But I think he's going in uh, into an escape reality. And then suddenly here comes his ex-wife, but she's a different femme fatale. And, uh, you know, he's now he's having this great sex with her and he's, you know, doing everything he could never have done with her in real life. And then it all starts to crumble, man. It's like he, he starts to hear the saxophone, his own saxophone playing on the radio. He starts to even have flashbacks of the murder and so it just starts to crumble on him. And eventually it completely crumbles away and he's back. I think even if the, you actually see scenes where Pete is in his room looking at the spider on the wall and it's exactly like the jail cell. It's, it's so he's still there. You know, and I think in the end, even uh, when he's driving down the Lost Highway and he's shaking his head like a maniac, he could be waking up into uh, the electric chair, <laughs> electricity, and that's how it could be in. Because <laughs> before, remember, he goes like, well, "Yeah, I haven't been able to sleep, Doc." Uh, before he, he goes, gives him a shot. He goes, "Well, you'll sleep now." And then they put him in there, and then he goes into this dream state, and maybe he was just uh, knocked out for two days, and they drug his uh, unconscious body up to the fryer. <laughs> Maybe they in Arizona or wherever California they allow that you can execute a sleeping person, and that's it. <laughs> what do you think? If Pete Dayton is James Dean and uh, uh, Nat- uh, Natasha Gregson Wagner is Natalie Wood, mm-hmm. who's uh, Plato yeah. Salminio? Uh, it's gonna be Scott Coffee or it's gonna be Giovanni Ribisi. One of those two. Another great Scott Coffee cameo in a Lynch movie. Yeah, he really knows how to just really knows how to sell it. Like he hardly ever has any lines, but he had he had like huh or this. Like I don't. He's had like barely anything, but you really bought that he was one of those dudes. I really commend commend Scott Coffee for his acting uh, cameos in all of his yeah, movies. Yeah, he's great. He, and of course, I think Mulholland Drive is the best. Yeah, and I think that uh, in all of the movies <laughs> that he's been in Lynch films, he's had a lot of scenes that have been cut. Uh, so, and, and this is the case in, in Lost Highway. There's a whole this section. I'll talk a little bit about it later. The, the script, there's a lot of detail um, in the script that is very interesting that uh, doesn't come across on, on the screen. And there's a lot of deleted scenes. It mostly has to do with the Pete Dayton section and Scott Coffey's character. But for me, I, I agree with you. I think what we're seeing here is, is the Fred Madison character on death row. Uh, he uh, is he's not like with his memory doesn't you know remember killing his wife or just can't come to grips with it creates a a fantasy world you know whether he does suffer from a fugue state a psychogenic fugue or if it's just something that he's you you know consciously constructing and that's what we're seeing play out but what i want to discuss in some detail because it's a little bit involved is uh the whole overview of, of the picture and i don't think it just is fred madison uh, realizing that his wife is unfaithful and 
coming home one night and it's just like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to kill her tonight randomly and then go to death roll and, and, and create this Pete Dayton fantasy world. For me, the very first scene of the film, other than the iconic opening of the highway, of the, the highway shot, the POV highway shot, is of Fred Madison alone in his house at dawn, looking like he's having a complete mental breakdown, disheveled, everything. There's no sign of Renee. There's nothing. He looks like Daryl Zero in that shot. He looks <laughs> like a great Bill, <laughs> Pol- great Bill Pullman movie. performance. Yeah. And also, come on, can we can we give a shout out to the uh, last seduction with uh, with uh, what's oh god he's great in that with scene. Uh, well, I'm forgetting her name uh, Fiorentino right Lindy Fiorentino and J T Walsh yeah. yes. god, but he called her bitchet her name yes. was Bridget called her bitchet bitchet yeah you better run. anyone out there who has not seen that movie it's like this early to mid nineties uh, independent low budget noiry uh, film with a great cast and a, a brilliant Linda Fiorentino performance it's on Prime there you go ding that watch it. Um, okay, so the first scene that we've seen of Fred Madison is him in full breakdown mode. He has killed Dick Laurent slash Mr. Eddie, and he has killed Renee. The chronology of that is that he has discovered off camera that his wife is unfaithful, and he probably knows about her backstory or her past of being involved in pornographic films and, and God knows what else, and discovers them uh, in flagrante delicto at the Lost Highway Motel, which very well may not be a Lost Highway Hotel, but a hotel. And Renee goes and leaves. And if you notice, she's wearing a very similar dress to the one that we see in the final night at the party with the mystery man, which we'll get into later. She goes home. He kills Dick Laurent, Mr. Eddie. He goes home and kills Renee. And what he does is he realizes, you know, obviously this is like a horrible thing that he's committed and he's breaking down. What transpires basically is him going through or experiencing this fugue state right at that particular moment, but he doesn't create a Pete Dayton fantasy world. What he's doing is he's recreating his marriage because he doesn't want his wife to be dead. He wants to love her and satisfy her and be relatively normal. He wants to have a normal existence. (laughs) That's how he envisions it, the first part. (laughs) He's doing a terrible job. We're seeing him on the precipice and he gets a subconscious message from himself telling him that Dick Laurent is dead. And then he hears the sirens. So all of this is playing psychologically, basically. He's, if he's done these crimes... So you're saying at that moment, then he goes back into a fiction reality right there after that first shot. Everything you see after that, he's in a fiction reality there. Yes, he's in a fiction reality because what he does is he hears the sirens, which foreshadows the impending uh, criminal investigation and his impending incarceration because there's no way in hell he's going to get away with it. So he recreates his life with Renee. And if you see him as the next shot is you know of them at home, uh, he emerges from the darkness. It's like he's emerging from a dark place. Dark hallway, subconscious. She's like, well, I'm not going to come to the club. I'm going to stay home and read. So she's very <laughs> passive. She's going to stay home. He seems kind of happy, smiling a little bit. No, he knows she's lying immediately. Read what? What are you going to read? It's already bad. Watch the scene again. He's got, I mean, it's I not as... It. Watch it closely. He's watch not again, as Murphy. you will watch it again. Okay, I'll watch it again. He's not as disturbed comparatively. Fred Madison, even though he's not a happy guy, he does not show a lot of uh, joy in in his character. At that moment, I would say he is the happiest. Even though on the happy scale, it's a one. 
but comparatively, because he's just now starting to recreate this fantasy, but it almost instantaneously is going wrong because he is immediately suspicious that, oh, you're just going to stay home and read? Right, immediately. So what does he do? He goes and he rocks out. He's a stud on stage. They're all clapping. I'm surprised they're not crawling on the floor like Wild at Heart. Cruddy Chops? Cruddy Kicks? (laughs) Cruddy Chops, Cruddy Kicks. He calls his wife, and if you notice, when he calls on the pay phone, what are the last three digits of his home phone number? 666. 666. I was just guessing there. So he calls his wife. His wife isn't there. So what's happening is that his reality is is slowly starting to crumble. But what happens is, is that he sees her in his bed. He fetishizes her. He makes love to her. But even in his fantasy world. He fetishizes her, but he sees the mystery man's face immediately. He knows deep down that he has killed her. He's killed her lover. Okay. But he's recreating this scenario or he's in a fugue state and he's trying to trying to do what he did in the Pete section, at least for a while, is maintain a sense of normalcy. Well, I've got an idea. Like, the idea, like, I always thought that it was kind of weird that, like, the first time you see her through his eyes, he sees the mystery man's face immediately before he kills her. But now you're kind of saying and positing that, like, this is all like a flashback already, and he's already killed her. And so that would make more sense, that he sees the mystery man's face, because he's already killed her. So it's almost like blocking out out her real face because she's dead, and the mystery man was like the Bob to his, you know, Leland. It's another tell. Basically, what he does after he is unable to satisfy his wife, even in this state, this fugue state. <laughs> That's right. He can't even satisfy her in the fugue state. God, everything's terrible. What does he do immediately? He tells her about a dream. And in the dream, he tells her that he is in their house and he finds her in bed and it's not her. So it's he, what he's doing is I think he's somehow trying to justify his inadequacy as a lover. But what's happening is, is that when she rolls over and, and he looks at her, he sees the mystery man's face. That's a part of his subconscious mind assigning blame for the murder of Renee and Mr. Eddie to the mystery man. Because if you watch the videotape, he's all mechanical as I didn't do this. And then when he shoots Mr. Eddie at the end, Fred Madison doesn't shoot him. The mystery man shoots him, but then he disappears and Fred has the gun. So the mystery man is the darkest part of Fred. This is Bob. How'd you get inside my house? You invited me. It is not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. And then it slowly just starts to devolve from there. And in fact, his dream that he has is the dream of the night that he killed her because he says, you were calling out to me. And she goes, Fred, Fred, where are you? That's exactly the same line reading that she gives right before he kills her. She walks into the darkness? No, he walks into the darkness, sees his reflection. Doesn't she also walk into the darkness at some point? Before We don't actually see him kill her, but doesn't she walk down the hall too? No, she calls out to him from the hallway, and then I think the camera just zooms in to the hallway. He looks at his reflection. It's basically, that's the point of no return, where he realizes, okay, this isn't real or it's not working. I did this. And when the camera comes out, the camera comes out of the darkness. It's not the darkness per se. It is the television. This whole thing about videotape recording... And, and Fred is trying to distance himself from that reality. And it's very interesting is that when he kills her, or at least when he comes towards the camera at that point at the end of the first act, and, and he has that face, that look on his face, where you know he's going to kill her, he disappears and he goes very quiet and it fades out. Well, it comes out of the television screen. and The television screen is blank. It's like he's blanking out that memory 
of having of having just killed his wife because he gets the videotape that next day, right? And he's dressed all in black like the mystery man. You know that he's done something wrong. He knows it's over now. He just has the recording of it. But even then he's like, no, Renee, he calls out to her even though he killed her because he is not, uh, he's not accepting blame for the crime. And then he gets, you know, uh, sent to death row. And that's the only reality of the film. You never see like him actually getting like, how, how did the police find out about this? All of a sudden he's just getting punched in the face. Murderer! You know what I'm saying? Like maybe the whole, maybe the whole dream you thought was happening in that first shot was him already, you know, arrested. You know what I'm saying? Because you don't really see how he gets arrested or how the cops find out about it or if he tries to clean it up or when he leaves or what. Like how does that happen? They omit the murder and they omit the actual app- apprehension of him by the cops. If he is in this fugue state, he finally comes to the moment where, okay, now I have a recording. I don't like to remember things my own way, but here's an actual recording. I am on the floor with my wife and her severed parts. So I'm fucked. My reality is fucked. What happens is we have a jump cut. We have the flash, the the, the lynch electricity, which connotes some unreality, and we have a jump cut. I think that jump cut is is suggesting the end of that false reality that he created. And we're seeing him in reality. And he, what does he say? Did I kill my wife? Tell me, no, tell me I didn't kill my wife. He's still not uh, accepting responsibility for it. You said there's like 20 uh, cameras on the outside of the house. What if there's 20 cameras on the inside of the house and all the shit we're seeing are from cameras in the house? And that somebody, the, the mystery <laughs> man, like to record it all of it and just send it to the cops, which really was just Bill Pullman sending it to the cops and then they come and arrest him that way. Some of some tape. So I got busted. Either that or you think he like turned himself in to the neighbor's call? Like what happened? I want to know how he ended up getting arrested. How, did he turn himself in? Did the cops bust him somehow to try to clean it up? Did he go to Vegas? What did he do? It's not interesting to me. What's interesting to me is actually what's on the screen. What we're dealing with here is a, as a man who can't accept reality, can't accept responsibility for his actions. Where's Alice? Alice who? Her name is Renee. If she told you her name is Alice, she's lying. And your name. If you killed someone and you can't accept responsibility, then what you're going to go ahead and do is you're going to assign a blame to someone else. And what he does is, I think, like you said, the whole Bob thing is that he, since what we're seeing are video cameras, that the, the camera's at an impossibly high angle. I think what he's doing is, is he's ascribing some kind of supernatural aspect to it. It's like, well, you know, I didn't do it. It was just this, whatever, this Bob demon or whatever. He meets him at, at this party and he tells him that, oh, I'm at your house and uh, I'm in two places at once and we've met before and it's all very mysterious. In fact, when Fred goes back to the house, and he sees the lights, he sees the flash lights, lights and he tells Renee to stay in the car. He goes into the house and the phone rings twice and something happens and he looks and he gets scared. If you watch that mystery man scene, when he calls his home, the phone rings twice and that's when the mystery man picks up. I think what's happening and what really cements this as a fugue state, at least this section for me, is that what Fred is seeing in that moment is that conversation he had with the mystery man, at least that part of it uh, unfold in his house. He sees the mystery man in his house and he realizes that is kind of the breaking point of his reality, but he still does not accept responsibility for it. The mystery man is the one who's actually killing Renee in Fred's mind. Yeah, don't you think the angle of the camera that's filming all the, the tapes, it's kind of like at the angle of the Bob bubble, huh? <laughs> Floats around, kind of could be a Bob bubble cam, yeah. The unreality that we're experiencing because even the cops say they're looking on the roof looking down from the roof 
which could be a metaphor for him trapped within his own head because of all those mysterious hallways and the darkness within that house and all the shadows and that he looks up to the skylight and here he is in this fugue state and what's above him like omniscient is the the police pressing down yeah looking down on him yeah turns back into Fred and you know he sees the mystery man he goes to the cabin which I think is also uh, another symbol of a part of his 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 mind maybe the, the darkest part of his mind maybe where he conjured uh, the mystery man and he goes because it's on fire and it's in reverse it's playing you know with with reality it's a symbol is that when he sees the mystery man the mystery man basically is calling him on his shit and saying, like, her name's not Alice, it's Renee. And, like, what the fuck is your name? And what he does is he puts the video camera to his eye and chases Fred. It's like, I, he's what he's trying to do is get Fred to accept responsibility. Look himself. That is the reality, is the video camera. And I think what transpires subsequently is, you know, in essence, a, a recording, a video of Fred going and killing Mr. Eddie, even though he is still in the Pete Dayton fugue state. And the mystery man does not exist. But in that fugue state, the mystery man is uh, an ally of, uh, of Fred Madison, just like he was an ally of Mr. Eddie. And isn't it interesting that in the Pete Dayton section that really what is transpiring is, 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 is Pete trying to, you know, be free, right? So that first scene, that classic scene is like, he's, you know, on the chaise lounge and he's in the open air and he's like, I'm not in my jail cell anymore. And he looks across the yard and there's this little swimming pool, this little toy boat. And it's like, it's like to give the sense of like kind of freedom, there's the picket fence in the background, but there's no one around. It's like, it's not real. It is real, but it, it's not, it's not real. Um, but uh what what's basically transpiring is is that Fred is conjuring this 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 reality this alternate reality in essence to kill another lover of Renee the Andy character so it's taking care of business basically not only making him like macho yeah all the people that he was getting fucked over yeah he wants to get revenge on the on Andy and on Mister uh, Declarant for you know fucking over his wife that he killed he's, yeah he steals Laurent's girlfriend basically he's still angry yeah he's still angry about that and exacting revenge on that but he could not do in real life yeah instead of Laurent stealing his wife or his wife loving you know, Laurent then he steals his mole his girlfriend his mistress and she winds up falling in love with him but of course because his mental state is so fractured and disturbed or he's a disturbed individual nothing is ever going to turn out well I mean he tries he tries the whole reason why I think he goes along with Alice to to kill Andy is to get the money and the passports. Like she says, we can go away. It's like he wants to keep escaping. Like go, go, go. And create another fantasy world. Well, it's like the return. It's like Mulholland Drive. There, it's the same deep dive. Into, it's almost the same uh, formula that he uses. Like just like the cowboy was just like the mystery man, the one arm man. They're all the same. 
Well, he's got his tropes and his motifs, just like any Hitchcock, Kubrick, Boonwell, Bergman. You know, they have their same tropes they go through over and over again. But, you know, of, of what you described the other night when you talked about it, it's like, well, there's a reason why the word Lynchian, you know, exists in the dictionary is because it's an adjective. Like he is, there's, you know, it, he has his own world that, you know, you can describe or you can use this word that describes his cinematic universe. And uh, I think he does it better than anyone else. And it's unique. Even though it is, and this this is a good segue. It is a little derivative. I don't want to ask you because you've seen these films, but Lynch is kind of a film buff. We know that a little bit, but if he was having some kind of midlife crisis and he wanted to kind of tell an LA story and maybe if there was a little bit of antagonism or anger towards the Hollywood system, um, isn't it interesting that there are some parallels in this film with Sunset Boulevard, Lolita, and Vertigo. Sunset Boulevard, the credit sequence in Lost Highway, the font is the font of Sunset Boulevard. It's the same font, exactly the same font. And basically what we're dealing with is people in Sunset Boulevard, our, our main three characters of Norma Desmond, Max, and Joe Gillis, they're all stuck. They're all stuck. The, 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 you know, Max and, and Norma are stuck in the past, and Joe Gillis is, is stuck in you know, this Hollywood kind of netherworld. He's you know financially stricken, and so he's stuck. And then what happens at, at the end of the film is that Norma Desmond uh, can't deal with the reality of killing her lover, so she creates a, a another reality where she is a huge star again, and all the cameras are there for her, for her close-up. Perfect state. Is mirroring what we're seeing in Lost Highway. And with the character of Humpert and uh, Humpert Humpert in Lolita, there's some very similar qualities with his sexual state? obsession with uh, with Lolita, with Fred Madison, with his obsession with uh, with Renee, with his wife. Is all of Lolita a fugue state when he goes to Quilty's? Like, is that a, is he going to, to a fugue? <laughs> no, but isn't it interesting that they start off both Sunset Boulevard and Lolita start at the very end of the film and they flash back and they come to, you know, they come full circle and... Uh, you know, people have described uh, Lost Highway as a Mobius strip where it starts off at the beginning and then the end point comes back and it kind of folds in on itself. I know it's not really, though, is it like we still I remember everybody talking about that and me learning what a Mobius strip was when it first came out. But it really isn't a Mobius strip. The Dick Laurent part, I get it, but really it's not. Yes, this is Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. It's about five o'clock in the morning. That's the homicide squad complete with detectives and newspaper men. A murder has been reported from one of those great big houses in the 10,000 block. The vertigo. I mean, also with this obsessiveness. Well, I mean, the dual personas, yeah, the two women. Yeah, trying to trying to recreate what he lost. But in, in vertigo, he was recreating it in real life with another woman who happened to be the original woman. But this is a, a fictional recreation of vertigo, like a vertigo, vertigo play. Yeah, Scotty's obsession with a woman yeah. who is obsessed with a dead woman and be who's dead, who's dead. And then he becomes obsessed with a woman who played the role of the dead woman obsessed with a dead woman. I mean, it's fascinating. And then Scotty is really physically remaking Judy into Madeline and his attempt to remake, remake a tragedy ends in tragedy. And uh, it, it, I mean, it's not a fugue state, but there are some similarities with the, those it's a walking fugue state. A walking fugue. Oh, he, doesn't he kind of go into a little bit of a fugue state in that middle part after? Uh, well, yeah, you could say that middle part, but he's freaking out the, the famous <laughs> yeah, Saul Bass right. thing. Like, that, that's a fugue state. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the rest of it is in fugue. Remember the, yeah. uh, the Henry Jones interlude, uh, the, the courtroom scene where he basically. Hey, I couldn't make a better effort the next time. <laughs> 
I love that. You know, his daughter was in Tourist Trap. <laughs> That's right, Jocelyn Jones. We talked about that. Yeah, that yeah. was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, but uh, Chuck <laughs> uh, But yeah, so Vertigo and Shades of, of Twin Peaks as well, Part 18. I mean, uh, at least with yeah. Vertigo and the the Dark Highway uh, motif and the the doubles and. What are we seeing? Are we seeing a Laura Palmer uh, dreamscape or dream? There's all these different possibilities. A lot of this is incestuous, cinematically uh, incestuous. Um, but uh, and Lost Highway, I think, is it's always been elevated on my my Lynch list. I could talk about it for like hours. There's so much that we haven't even touched upon. I just like I remember like Barry Adamson was like the first time I ever heard of that guy, and I think his music and the way they do like the Pete Dayton uh, dream center, like starting at the Hollywood Sunset when they see him, like you see a lot. Uh, you see a lot more connections, and I think um, as you get older, like when I was a kid seeing it, I didn't really get it. But now I, I feel like it's just a perfect masterpiece of sound, you know, film, acting. Everything's great other than Balthazar. <laughs> Doesn't that whole rendezvous with Pete and Alice go from like sunset to sunset while the Barry Addison, Adamson song, Hollywood Sunset, is playing in the background? Yeah begins and ends with it you actually see the sunset so it's really it's it's complete just like in the in the, in the first shot of him sitting in the, in the chaise lounge it's at sunset in the backyard you could tell like he's uh he's in the he's in his own mental hollywood sunset and uh yeah dude just beautiful we get the close-up of alice's eye like her right eye and then it, it goes to a close-up of pete's left eye um it, it, very striking visual but a little reinforcement She's not real. She's a half of a person, and he's half of a person. That section, for me, always was troubling because it seemed lazy. It seemed like there was story to tell, but there was too much footage, and Lynch had to get it down to a reasonable um, uh, running time, which is is true. And I always felt that that's the section that lagged, that was uh, that got the short shrift. But watching it again... Um, there are these little subtle moments. It's like, I think like Lynch is cherry picking certain things. He's, he's cutting corners, but it's still interesting. And that whole little montage in the middle, it doesn't work completely. It would be my only true uh, complaint or criticism, I should say, of the film. But I'm discovering little bits in within these scenes that I never you know noticed before. That, yeah, just, I mean, yeah. like the, the way Bobby, like Pete and, and uh, Natasha Wagner, just like Bobby and Shelley. You know what I'm saying? Like, is that like a, if Lynch goes into a fugue state, is that what he goes into? Goes back to the 50s? Driving around, this old, like, Corvette. Yeah, his girlfriend. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Isn't Blue Velvet a great fusing of the 1950s wholesomeness decade stereotypes with the contemporary at the time the mid 80s which gives it kind of a timeless feel lost highway seems now i'd seen it since its premiere in 97 but it always seemed like a product of its time of like kind of this late 90s but now seeing it again feels like the 50s again yeah, yeah. at least peace part Fred and Renee's section does not feel 90s to me. It doesn't feel 50s. No, they're talking on payphones and stuff. It feels like it feels antiquated. It feels like it's old school. It could be like, yeah, it could all be 50s. Just post, postmodern 50s. Gothic, yeah. Yeah, it feels like it's its own era. It's own reality. I think another reason what, which made me think that it was a product of its time was the soundtrack. You have Marilyn Manson and you've got Smashing Pumpkins. I, and I'm not a fan of that particular genre, but... The songs that are on that soundtrack and the way that they were incorporated into the film were are perfect blend. Reznor stuff, brilliant. Reznor was great, like really good. Like it was like 
it was banging, man. It was the shit. For, and a lot of people didn't get it because it, uh, I remember like the resident, there was a, there was a video on MTV that was back when MTV meant something, but like, I don't think anybody was clamoring for, you know, playing the lost highway soundtrack at the club, you know, but we did. And it was a big part of our life. It still is. I'd still, I, I love listening to it again. I wish I had it. I need to put it on my Spotify. Like who else was on there? Anybody else? Anybody else were missing artists? You had Rammstein. Yeah, that was huge. <laughs> um, which I think wasn't Lynch whistling a Rammstein tune in, in season three. Yeah, is that true? I, I, I don't know. Catch that, but I, I believe you. Yeah, I, I don't know. But uh, but no, a, a great marriage of, of Angelo. I mean his his score. I mean it's it, it's dark. I mean it's a darker Angelo fused with uh, Barry Adamson, the something wicked this way comes, which was during the mystery man scene and, uh, and that Hollywood sunset, which I've always tried to find the extended version of Hollywood sunset. Cause what's on the soundtrack is truncated. The longer version that's plays in the film. I want that. That's like, that's brilliant. I love it. But um, it's, it's overall, I think fire walk with me is my personal favorite soundtrack, but lost highway is number two. And it's a close, close second. Close. Yeah, the Lou Reed magic moment. Great scene. Yeah, great scene. Great. This yeah. magic moment, that's fucking good. Okay, yeah. so a couple of uh, quick hits here. We might go into a little bit, you know, detail, but um, we talked a little bit about this. The iconic opening. Just tell me, first time you saw the film, that opening shot, the feeling. I was like, fuck yes. I was like, here we fucking go. I was like, that was the greatest opening I've ever seen in my life. I was fuck yeah, yes. And still, I mean, that really is like a quintessential Lynch. Like he uses the ghost ride in a lot of things. And uh, that was, that, I mean, that's almost like the essential Lynch opener, like of, of everything. Like just riding down that fucking lost highway. That's Lynch. That's it. And the music, oh my God, number one. Best opener of all the movies, I think. Yeah, Philip Jeffrey singing, rocking out. Yeah, and I had the same feeling when I saw it, even at 10 a.m., like on a Tuesday with eight other people in the theater and they were film critics, I, I was immediately transported and it immediately became iconic. And even though Blue Velvet's opening is iconic, uh, this one to me is a personal fave. Like I've always said that Blue Velvet is my favorite Lynch movie and it probably is his best one, but... Mulholland Drive is really neck and neck with that, but Lost Highway is sneakily good and I would probably be number three. And Wild at Heart is still up there. And Wild yeah, at Heart. Wild at yeah, those are the top four for me. Top four for me. But yeah. but that, that opening sequence is mirrored at the end. The uh, same thing. And we talked a little bit about this. A little subtlety, a little Lynch, always the little details, right? So the divider, it's a two-lane highway. The divider is the, the yellow uh, uh, markings on the road, the striped lines, which are uh, disconnected. And then the middle section, there's that part where we're on the lost highway and Fred is transforming into Pete. You see Pete, he pulled, the car pulls over and you see Pete at the side of the road with the ghost house in the background with Sheila, Natasha, Wagner, and his parents. And uh, but the, the, the markings on the road, the divider, are two parallel lines which is a little subtlety that I think that what we're seeing here is uh, like parallel storylines or duality or the theme of duality, I should say. Just a little subtlety because Lynch could have very easily just taken that same stock footage. Uh, these puzzle box movies and Lynch, I, so, I respect so much just the, the intricate details. And whether it was bullshit or not, as uh, Henry Silva would say in uh, uh, Amazon Women on the Moon, was the Loch Ness Monster really Jack the Ripper? Find out on Bullshit or Not. I mean, a little segue there, but that was one of my favorite 
laugh out moments in all of cinematic history seeing Amazon Women on the Moon. Never seen it. Well, you've never seen Amazon Women on the Moon? Well, I mean, not in a long time. I think I may have seen it like when I was younger, but I have no recollection of what that would even be. So I need to, need to check it out. Ed Begley Jr. as the son of the invisible man who is, thinks he's invisible, but it's not invisible. No, I need to see this. My God. He goes to a bar, takes off the bandages, and he's completely naked. <laughs> and he's like there? moving darts around. And everyone's <laughs> going like, oh, look, it's the invisible man. Dude, it's hilarious. It's the Kentucky Fried Movie Part 2. That sounds like a good. That sounds like a good. A good double bill with Transylvania six five thousand. <laughs> the whole like Fred Madison um, sexual inadequacy slash impotency. I think he just. I think he just uh, climaxes too quickly um, with 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 Renee, but. It's interesting because Pete is a fuck beast. I mean, he's a monster in the sack and he is uh, uh, sexually uh, ravenous with both uh, Sheila and Alice, but it's a classic missionary dominant position. What happens is the moment that a woman takes control and is on top of him (laughs) is the desert scene it, uh, with uh, the great mood lighting or not even a mood lighting it's just washed out but it's brilliant with the, that song is that he wants her he tells her I want you I want you but he's in a subservient or a submission a submissive position and that's where she tells him whisper another whisper classic you know Lynch whisper in her ear you'll never have me so I don't know if that's you know deliberate if that's subtextual yeah, I will admit that that scene, actually, I don't like that much. Like, when I watched it again, I fast-forwarded through it. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> like, I was like, come on. But isn't on. that kind of the culmination? Come on. Yeah, I know. But still, I mean, what? okay, that would have been an earned scene if you would actually see that they had a love and that she was a real person and that he had a heart and there was something there. You know what I mean? Like, there was, we never got to see it. And so it just seems like tacked on and like kind of like this jerk-off fantasy of this crazy killer. You know, he, he thinks he's noble. And that they've had this note, but you don't see it as an audience. And so I feel it kind of left me cold. It just went on a little too long. And also I was like, God, they're going to have sand in their ass like for days and think about <laughs> sex in the sand. Yeah. It's just the music and because he's really making it, he's really selling that, that scene. And uh, I, I will admit that I fast forwarded through it. I don't, I don't, I didn't love it. It's one of my only faults. Don't you think that Fred Madison uh, is uh, lacking in heart and, because yeah. of that, even in his fantasy world, you're going to lack heart. That sex scene is not it's not very sexy. I think the sexiest uh, scene in the film is it's it, I think is it's it's raunchiest or it's it, it's most graphic is when um, you describe that scene where he's in his bedroom and it, it really is like a facsimile of of the prison cell. He sees the spider on the wall and and that that whacking technique that Lynch created by taking the lens out of the camera, which distorts the frame. So it's like his reality is distorting. And Pete's like, I got to go. My world is crumbling. And he goes on his bike and he meets Sheila. And it's the Marilyn Manson on the soundtrack. And they're in bed and the camera's kind of vibrating. And he's just, you know, they're going at it. And that's like a very uh, potent, sexy scene. But the scene in the desert 
it's almost like a very similar, like, you know, fetishized version of, of sex. It's like what this deranged person, it would make sense that that scene wasn't sexy. That would, the moment where he desires her the most, that he wants to, he covets her, the, 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 where they should be at their pinnacle of pleasure is, is it's just, it's, it's even at the, the staging of it, it's, it's, it's beyond unreal. And the sand, all the stuff that you're talking about, and it's a beautiful song. And I like the cinematography, but um, it, it makes sense within the construct of the unreliable narrator. Ted, ba- the Ted B- Bundy's romantic fantasy. Yeah, the woman that he killed. <laughs> <laughs> or the, or the da- Black Dahlia. Black Dahlia. He's the Black Dahlia, essentially. He cut her in half as the Black Dahlia, so that's what he is, the Black that, Dahlia killer. That her death, at least the way that she was cut in half and the body pieces, I think it certainly was, you know, evokes the, the Black Dahlia, which is the famous murder, L.A. murder mystery. So this being an L.A. story, the first L.A. Lynch mystery, uh, which has, it's not a, it's not like a Hollywood film, but it's, it, there is like an underbelly, the seat of your side of, you know, Hollywood with the, the pornographic world. You could say perhaps maybe Betty or Diane, or remember that character in Mulholland Drive? Remember those two guys? Renee, yeah. Renee also came to be an actress. Yeah. Wait, is Renee an actress in the film? Lost Highway? Is that what you're saying? No, but I'm thinking like, I'm imagining that she, she ended up getting into porn, but she probably came to Hollywood to be an actress legit actress and she sunk into porn yeah remember that character in Mulholland Drive with the two guys I think one of them is Michael DeBar and they're eating the hot dog and they they were trying to find the mm-hmm. the, the brunette and there's the one girl and just like you can kind of get a sense that yeah. this was a similar Betty that she was an attractive woman that probably came to Hollywood to you know seek her fame and fortune but now she's on the bum so to speak and you know these guys are using her maybe even sexually is that so there's a little undercurrent there in Mulholland Drive but we get the seedier in Lost Highway with this pornographic uh, uh, milieu at least with Mr. Eddie is that Mr. Eddie is a gangster but he's also into pornography and, and I think that porno we're seeing at the end is a snuff film I think that, um, that that's why he gets off because of his he is a gangster. Like, isn't like he he and Renee are getting it on while watching the the porno, um, and then so Marilyn Manson dies or gets shot and is writhing yeah. on the floor. Yeah, it's kind of like a horror movie porno. Yeah, probably it's probably fiction. I don't think it's real, but I think it's uh, you know satanic, ritualistic, all the good things, <laughs> devil horns and whatnot. Yeah, it was weird. Lost Highway. I don't think it gets enough love or praise. And uh, I agree. It gets lost to the cracks. I think it's gotten lost to the cracks a little bit. Somehow, Mulholland Drive overshadowed Lost Highway in people's minds. I don't think Lost Highway is is as accessible as the other Lynch films. Yes, Lynch's career or creative midlife crisis. Um, he was coming off the the cr- uh, critical and financial uh, disaster of Firewalk with Me. I think he was going through a very very dark. If you read, you didn't read uh, Room to Dream, right? The book. Um, no, but do you think was Dino De Laurentiis fucking him up and Mr. Eddie was like his version of Dino? <laughs> yeah, who was the who was the suit yeah, that Mr. Eddie that he, fucked him uh, over? Yeah, who fucked yeah. him over? But that he hated. Yeah, reading that book, Room to Dream, he talks about that period and and you know these projects that couldn't get off the ground. And so I think Lynch was doing some reassessing of you know maybe his career. But that period of time of 92 to like 96, 97 is a very fascinating time because I think once Lost Highway come back, the outlier is the straight story. And I think, you know, that was a Mary Sweeney project that she was going to do, you know, regardless of Lynch's involvement. For Disney. He just fell in love with it. Well, they picked it up post. But um, 
once Lynch finds his footing again, or at least gets the project off the ground, Lost Highway, other than the straight story, he, he doesn't come back from the filmmaker that, that we knew. I mean, he, he really goes, I mean, he is diving down and ex- it's very similar. So he didn't do that. He, he is the same. Well, come on. I mean, Mulholland Drive, <laughs> I think another reason why it's accessible or as accessible as it is because the first two thirds of that film was a television pilot. It was a setup and just like the Twin Peaks pilot. And then when he came back to tie it all together, he came up with Silencio and Noai Banda and, you know, evil, uh, you know, old people. And uh, the, just the nightmare. Betty is, is psychotic deranged like fred madison so and and that but really she wasn't tortured she wasn't brought into porn and you know with gangsters like why did she turn so bad like what did she was she just have like just didn't get the work huh not just over insane well i think that she came to hollywood with aspirations and she was unable to get the part you never saw her getting abused though basically you know you just saw her just getting it's like doggy dog dog, dog doesn't return of the dog's phone call that's the only pain that she well, got but that that's why i described that that, that one knew. female character is that why was that female character in Betty's dream? Lynch could have very easily cut that scene out. None of those characters show up again. I think that female character, I think has been put through the ringer. And I think it is probably something that Diane experienced. I think Diane, I'm not saying she like experienced- Like the waitress. Like the waitress experienced, like you know, yeah. she did pornographic films. But I think, I mean, you, you live in LA. I mean- She you- did telemarketing, that's even worse. <laughs> That's the Uber driving of the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> it's and I think Lynch, I mean, he's a filmmaker. He casts these movies. I think he knows very well that, you know, it's the city of dreams and there's a lot of shattered dreams. And, uh, but I find it very interesting that once he gets on the lost highway, I mean, he's, he's still on the, the creative lost highway, so to speak. I mean, he's yeah. in a, you know, a, a dark cloud. Uh, that he's, he's probably in. driving down a lost highway right now. <laughs> I hope he is. I hope he yeah. is. Yeah. If Lynch hadn't had another Mulholland drive in him, would you have kind of cooled on him? No, I'd still be going back to it. But even after Fly Rock with me, like that's what I'm saying, you were like the only one banging the drum like, like an insane person and everyone else thought you were mad. And so I, I was already resigned to the fact that like it was kind of like, you know, like being a fan of horror movies or something, something that no one else got but you got. But that's okay. And I, I love the fact that we were, in a way, we're rebel outlaws and we were on the, the Lost Highway ghost ride with Lynch. And there were pe- everybody listening to this was also the same, I presume. But uh yeah, I mean, it was depressing that, that no one else got it, but uh, it was also kind of equally depressing when a show like Seinfeld, which I lo- we loved as kids, it became like the best show in the whole world. And like, you know, I, lo- I like having things that I like myself, you know, that are only our little, you know, are the things that we love that's not, you know, broadly appealing. And because we're all, you know, we're all weirdos. I would think that anybody that loves Lynch has definitely got a little weird in them. And I appreciate that. That's true. I, I, my freak flag flies high, Frank. <laughs> Is that Hunter S. Thompson? So I would, yeah, yeah, I think that, so. I would, have, I, would have, I would have ridden with him no matter what. Obviously, wouldn't they get to the if, – if, like, he'd only made nothing but Inland Empires afterwards, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, boy, there we go. Like, but I'd still be showing up, and I'd be like, Bleh. But I'd still be coming. Yeah, I'd still come. Yeah. <laughs> quick shout-out to, uh, shout to uh, Gary Busey. I, I loved his little role in it. I thought Natasha Wagner was really good. And uh, Jack Nance. Really, the last time that he was in any film, it was a David Lynch film. He uh, died uh, shortly after filming. He's got a little part in uh, in Lost Highway, and yeah, uh, he was so- sorely missed. He would have been in all of Lynch's films, I think. Lynch's spirit animal. He is Lynch's spirit animal, and uh, and the film shot by Peter Demi, who uh, 
Great. He's shot pretty much Maybe all his of his films. Yeah, I, I think so. The darkness, the, the chocolate browns, and the... Uh, it's not warm. Uh, the black, it's not a warm film. Yeah. It's like super dark. And then the sound design. I mean, Firewalk, for me, Firewalk With Me is the, the pinnacle, the, the best sound design for any Lynch uh, film. But this one is a very close second. I mean, it's almost like when you're watching these scenes of just like the house or the cabin, that they're organic, they're alive, they're breathing, they're sighing, they're screaming... Uh, it, it really just adds another element to the the film. And I think of all of Lynch's films, and this is saying a lot, the mood of this film, even though I don't think it's his best film, the look, the soundtrack, the sound design, right up my alley and right at the top of the list. Like if I could live in a David Lynch movie, and this is a very strange thing to say, I would live in Lost Highway. E, you're I would. a freak. You're insane. You need to get. You need help. You need to get a therapist immediately. <laughs> Come on, dude. It's great. I mean, you just look at all the negative aspects of it, you know. But I'm just talking about the, the that world, even though it's dark and depraved. I don't want to be Fred Madison, but the, that's like, true. The, it's kind of like which one would you live in? None of them are very appealing. Maybe Dune. Well, which for one me. would Maybe you? Choosing Dune. I'm thinking choosing Dune. Riding the worms, eating the spice. Would you be riding the worms with uh, Everett McGill? Yeah. You know, the blue yeah, eyes, Sean Young. Yeah, I'd be loving it. Blue eyes, loving it. Yeah. I'm choosing Dune. Oh, that's great. <laughs> On that note, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Wait just one second there, Buster. The ending of Lost Highway. The penultimate scene has the detectives from the first third of the film that investigated the videotapes at Fred and Renee's house reappear. We had been following two detectives, two new detectives, during the Pete Dayton section of the film. These four appear together at Andy's house. Um, Two revelations here. The photograph that Pete saw... um, after killing Andy of Renee and Alice appears as just Renee now that the fantasy has broken down for Fred. The other piece of information that we get is that Pete Dayton's prints are all over the place. Now, I believe this is Fred Madison who is still in the fugue state but no longer assuming the identity of Pete assigning blame to Pete Dayton exonerating himself from a murder, which is his pattern. And the final scene of the film, Fred traveling down the lost highway in Mr. Eddie's Mercedes, the police in close pursuit, uh, the the fugue state, the reality that he has created is, is collapsing on itself. It's over. Um, all of this is in his head, of course. And this really is the greatest ending of a David Lynch film, the most powerful, nightmarish of all of his films still just electrifies to this day um, watching that ending. Um, So who is Fred going to transform into? He's in Mr. Eddie's car. Now the car that he was driving prior to that was the actual car of Fred Madison in the first third of the film. Uh, Alice says that was Andy's car that they got into to drive uh, to the desert to the cabin. That was actually Fred Madison's car. So what does Fred Madison do? He's going to assume another identity. Now, we don't know who that person is going to be. This very well could be, as Murphy suggested, Fred in the electric chair, and these are the last moments of his life. But it would be interesting to think that if he's going to create a third scenario of who it would be, the first scenario, Fred tried to recreate 
you know, his marriage, his, uh, his life with Renee, uh, but that rapidly disintegrated. Then he tried to create a new identity as Pete Dayton, which he was a little bit more successful at, but that, of course, didn't work out. And the third persona, who would he become? Why not Mr. Eddie? The whole center of Fred Madison's uh, fugue state is to exonerate himself from the crime of killing his wife, of putting himself in a new situation, a new reality, uh, where he is able to recreate his love affair with his wife, whether it's her or as another identity. But the constant in both of the two scenarios was that Mr. Eddie or Dick Laurent was Renee slash Alice's lover. And it would make sense that if Fred is going to morph into another personality, he would morph into the very powerful Mr. Eddie. And maybe under this scenario, he would be able to be successful with the third iteration of, of Renee, who very well may be that redhead that Pete saw uh, in Andy's house when he opened the door, who said uh, something like, uh, don't you want to ask me why? I think that is possibly would be the third version of Renee, and this one might be the most dangerous. Uh, it might also represent the darkest feelings or memories or uh, the nightmare of, of Fred, of who he suspects his wife really is or what she has experienced in her life. And it's so dark that when he was acting as Pete Dayton, that he had to quickly shut the door and he had to get the hell out of there. He didn't want to see that version of his wife. But maybe that would be the version in the third fugue state of Fred Madison on the Lost Highway. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 